Plowing old patterns, raising new ground. Episode 2 of Beneath Clouded Hills. This podcast is part of a wider art project by Verity Burt and myself, Una Hamilton Heller, in which we journey into deep England. If you haven't listened to the first episode, we recommend you go back and start there, and if you have, then thanks for staying with us. In this episode, we meet with other artists, musicians, and academics as we take a closer look at our green and pleasant land. This episode is called Pastoral Excavations. Is there an image that I have of Deep England? Um, I, I know what I'm supposed to think. This is David Gilbert, Professor of Geography at Royal Holloway University in London. The place that's imagined and discussed in academic debates is very much centred on the South Country and its particular kinds of South Country. So archetypally, it's Constable Country. So it's the the kind of bits of East Anglia that do have some hills and basically aren't suburban Essex. It's the Cotswolds, it's the Chilterns, it's parts of Kent, it's Devon. It's those kinds of places that have particular kinds of characteristics so it's, it's usually mixed farming it's usually undulating I think that's interesting there isn't a kind of the, you know East Anglia Fenlands have different mythologies and a different kind of sense of sense of place I mean I clearly also very very English a little bit Dutch but very very English in in different kinds of ways but they're not seen as part of this kind of kind of particular landscape When we've asked our guests about Deep England, it's often its mystical associations that have been brought up. But David paints a different picture of a more pastoral Deep England, one that's equally powerful in the cultural imagination. So where does this image come from? And why is this landscape so deep-rooted in the national psyche? I I think one of the things about Deep England, one, one of the things about the ways in which that landscape gets celebrated but also becomes a kind of focus of focus of debate and a focus of desire perhaps that's a that's a better way of expressing that is that it's very often associated with moments of kind of national trauma or significant change so i think firstly you can see around both the world wars that there is a a kind of sense that as well as talking about you know sort of families and values that nations fight for landscapes nations fight for places um there's a there's a book called in search of england um by by an author called hv morton that's published in 1927 i think which is which is a really interesting book, except it's not. It's quite dull if you read it. But it's really interesting to think about it as a book. And it starts with this um, meditation about and memory of being in the trenches, being in the trenches in the fourteen eighteen war and trying to sort of focus on why he was going through this experience and what he was fighting for. 
And he kind of makes a pledge to himself that if he survives, he will go and search for the true England. He will search for the real England because that's what, that's what all this sacrifice, that's what all this, this mud and slaughter and everything else has been for. And then what he does in the 20s is he goes out telling the inner car and sort of drives around England looking for this kind of archetypal landscape, looking for this landscape of winding lanes, of, you know, sort of churches in the valley and, and you know, brooks and copses and, and that kind of thing. A um, couple of things about that. One is it's a huge bestseller. So it's, it's got this extraordinary reach. There's a kind of mass public that buy into In Search of England. I know when one of my grandmothers died, I think we found three copies of it. <laughs> you know, so she, and, and you go to a second-hand bookstore and they're, they're all there, you know, in sort of different, different editions and different, different kinds of things. The other one, though, is that as well as being something that comes out of the First World War, it's also about modernity. So it's about, you know, a man driving in a car, quite a fast car, around the kind of new roads, the new A roads of interwar England, and trying to make those kinds of connections with it. And in some senses, what it's speaking to is not not the elite and not the people that actually live in those places, but a kind of sort of new suburbanised middle class who are looking for connections with particular places who in, in lots of ways are, are looking for where they can go on trips where they can go on holiday to, to kind of form an identity and you can almost see you know in lots of ways some of the, the the kinds of forms of suburban development that you get in that period is, is having little hints you know they, they try to look cottagey they try to to mimic some of those things even though they're you know part of you know hugely expanding west and north london or birmingham or or, or or whatever else you get you get the same thing in the second world war as well so that there's actually the second world war in some ways is more bureaucratized so there's a kind of official report into the sort of landscape and townscapes of of england uh, britain england discussed but certainly of england um called the scott newthwatt report and that again, that does the same in search of England. It says, "What are we fighting for? What's worth preserving? What are we? What are we trying to? Um, what are we trying to make sense of in this? What are we? What are we protecting?" And it's got some wonderful passages that are the deepest of deep England. They talk about you know the English landscape is this checkerboard of fields. Is you know we have winding lanes, not straight roads. We have. Uh, you know, we have small copses and everything else, and occasionally it kind of um, sort of reaches up into moorlands and things like that. So this very, very precise imagining of what is being protected, of, of what's working there. There was a another big figure, W. G. Hoskins, who was the kind of local historian, wrote about the sort of layers of history, wrote about the, the making of the English landscape as a as a kind of palimpsest that each successive generation, each successive era left its mark on that and why it was so interesting and beautiful. Um, was because you could see those traces. You could see a Roman road or you could see a you know a 
you could see a long barrow or you could see you know the the kind of evidence of enclosure and other kinds of things that just make make this up so the windy lanes the copses those aren't kind of just random those are about a complicated history you know i think he did it very much in in a kind of romantic way it came from devon and it was kind of celebration of that particular landscape which for him was his sort of deep england and everything else was almost being measured against that but i think if you do that in a different way you can also see the ways in which people have left their marks and i think you can also do it in a way that thinks about their wider interconnections you know who they were and you know what kinds of power relationships they were on the wrong end of or they were benefiting from although seductive to us as artists Hoskins' method for looking at the landscape as a historical retainer betrays an amnesia about the power dynamics that have shaped the countryside. It was particularly the role of class that historians and cultural critics in the 80s and 90s wanted to interrogate in relation to memory and heritage. It's from these debates that the term Deep England originates, when academics like Patrick Wright analysed why this particular type of landscape was so strongly centred in English identity. So I think Deep England, as a kind of textbook definition, really sort of thinks about the ways in which a particular landscape becomes part of a national mythology. It's interesting to me because we, we talk about it a lot now in the, you know, in the 21st century. And it's interesting to me the ways in which perhaps the term has slightly moved on and slightly shifted in terms of the ways that we, we construct politics around it. So I think back when that ter- terminology is being coined, it's very much about class. It's very much about a kind of Englishness that is of the elite that excludes a, a particular kind of history from below. I think what we now have is a kind of vision of deep England that says, well, the voices that are being excluded are a kind of more globalised set of voices and factors. So much of the kind of sort of debates that we've been having over the last decade about the National Trust, about um, stately homes, but particularly kind of iconic landscapes there, are in a sense no longer about the, you know, the rural workers that made that possible or the rural workers that were there and that were present and lived particular kinds of lives, but are actually about others who were more distant whose work, whose labour, whose lives, literally, in many cases, were part of the making of that particular landscape. David is talking here about the role that empire played in the shaping of the British countryside. A research project from 2014 called Legacies of British Slave Ownership identified that after the abolition, the British government compensated slave owners with over £17 in today's money. Much of this money was invested into country estates, property and land in the UK. This gigantic sum was finally paid off by the British taxpayer in 2015. This changes the story we've been told, but such attempts at reframing our history come up against resistance again and again. It seems many people don't want their bucolic ideal to be ruptured. The strength of the reaction to, to, to those kinds of ideas 
I think tells us something about the power of deep England, tells us something about the ways in which people want, or certain people, want to sort of hold on to a story of this being important to their identity, this being something that is bound up with their past and actually, you know, as they would see, it shouldn't be sort of subjected to this kind of wokery or whatever, that it's being spoiled or ruined or, or kind of... Um, you know, sort of over-analyzed in, in, in some kinds of ways. And you hear, you hear an enormous amount of that. And I think that, for me, tells you something about the power of this kind of idea and the sorts of associations that some people, particular groups, will have um, with, with those places. So I think the, the idea is, is incredibly powerful and has become more powerful um, in our time. So the traditional vision of Deep England as a static landscape, frozen in time, is particularly powerful. If Deep England is a fictitious place, why are we so resistant to reimagining it, even when new discoveries come to light? That being said, it seems like this is changing. When we asked David at the beginning how he imagined Deep England, he made an interesting observation. I've done that exercise with students, getting them to imagine it, uh, over about 20 years and I think it, it ref- it's interesting that they less and less when asked to imagine what the English landscape looks like less and less do they actually pick up on the, the particular tropes of deep England and quite often are talking about uh, an urban world they're talking about they do talk about London so they talk about you know sort of Big Ben and and other other kinds of things so I think I think it's interesting that for a, for a younger generation, maybe that's maybe that's changing. I don't know. Um, you know, in, in, in the kind of culture wars that we have about deep England at the moment, I, th- I think that there's also a generational division that some people sort of imagine their country and the, the, the kind of look and shape and form of their country in in very different ways from. the the sort of generation that that kind of grew up post-war and and had a particular sense of that. Oh, the snow, it melts the soonest when the winds begin to sing And the corn, it ripens fastest when the frosts are setting in And when a young man tells me that me face he'll soon forget before we part, I'd better crown. He'd be fain to follow it yet. Oh, the snow, it melts the soonest when the winds begin to sing. And the swallow skins without a thought as long as it is spring. But when spring blows and winter goes, me lad and you be fain with all your pride, for to follow me where it cross the stormy main. Oh, the snow it melts the soonest when the winds begin to sing, and the bee that flew when summer shone. In winter he won't sing And all the flowers in all the land So brightly there they be And the 
snow it melts the soonest when my true love's for me. So never say me farewell here, no farewell I'll receive. You can meet me at the stile, you kiss and take your leave. And I'll wait here till the woodcock crows, or the martin takes his leave. Since the snow it melts the soonest when the winds begin to sing. As the snow melts, new life emerges. And from below the surface, the English landscape is continuously revealing secrets about its complex history. We speak to Nastasha Semensky and Rebecca Lee, who were artists in residence at an archaeological excavation on Pendle Hill in Lancashire back in the summer of 2018. Their resulting work, Sherds, reveals more of these entangled stories in England strata. I think there's something around the, particularly like the trope of excavation that is very appealing to to artists within archaeology in general and I think we you know the way we see archaeology as a discipline within kind of popular culture and cinema and tv as well and there's the idea of you know there's some deep unknown past that has been forgotten that's going to get uncovered or the ruins of which are uncovered. It seemed that you know for for the for that period of time, kind of working on that hillside, everything was kind of stretched out in a way, and kind of things seemed to move much more slowly. The days felt quite long because it was so hot, and there wasn't that much shelter. Um, the ground was very dry, so in order to see anything, they would have to kind of mist it with water as well to try and show up the these kind of minute variations in um, mm. soil color, so that they could. And there was this very speculative process as well that you really started to to see this kind of situated knowledge that if you work on the land or in in, in any particular area or um, you know whether it's kind of you know people going out regularly sort of ferreting or whether it's people kind of working on an allotment or gardening or or working on an archaeological dig. That it, you you kind of started to see how people have developed this really close reading of landscape where, you know, for us, we would look at it as people kind of newly arrived at this dig without these kind of archaeological <laughs> eyes. And to, we'd kind of be looking at these different shades of brown and kind of be going, well, it just looks like all looks like mud to us. Whereas, you know, the archaeologists, particularly the ones who'd been doing it for much longer, would say, oh, no, that's a post hole. That's a badger hole. That's clay that's actually lime wash from a wall 
and you know they could see this whole other world of activity kind of in mm. front of them whereas to us we were kind of like okay, it's different shades of brown and ochre and that's a bit gray um yeah so there was this sort of you know as well as sort of time feeling like a kind of <laughs> elastic in a way there was also this this idea that um yeah there was these different levels of perception that people mm. had because of this idea of dwelling in the landscape and and kind of spending a prolonged amount of time there mm. as well. As artists, you're, there's things that you want to explore and then you have the additional um, kind of structuring or complications of these infrastructures that then enable you to be able to spend time doing those things. So f for us, for Sherds, that was through applying for this five-week um, residency on an archaeological dig that was taking place in Pendle and it was specifically a 17th century well I say it's a 17th century dig of course whenever you're on a you know anywhere uh, particularly if it's an archaeological excavation it might be the focus is a 17th century dig but of course you have all of these other times and lives that you also encounter and kind of sort of become part of through that through that process of that kind of exploration as well but the focus of this dig was a 17th century um, excavation on a hillside um, and one of the things that particularly interested us about it is the um, some of the reasons why the dig was taking place um, is that there were some legal accounts at the time of some trials where a group of local people were tried for witchcraft and subsequently kind of executed or who died uh, in, in custody during that process um, one of the things that felt significant about it was the aspirations of this archaeological dig to find some material culture about everyday life for working um, and landless people in the, in the 17th century and thinking about how that might kind of resonate today in terms of thinking about land, land use, class, and the fact that the only reason we knew that these people even existed were because of these trials. Um, otherwise, there's often very little kind of material evidence left about kind of how people might have, might have lived. Sherds is an ongoing experimental project. What you're hearing is a recording of a live performance at Nottingham Contemporary with an extended ensemble of musicians. Sherds also takes different forms as a piece for radio, as well as pieces of writing. 
Particularly to this dig, there's lots of importance around boundaries, partly because of the socio-historical kind of research that had been going on in order to pinpoint that dig. It was really important, like, where local boundaries were and how those boundaries were maintained by either trees or stone walls and stuff. So we tried, so we worked with the stone walls quite a bit, but also the kind of barbed wire fences and the wind, like the incessant wind, and kind of took pictures and created chords from that interaction on the site and the weather and stuff. So there wasn't just one approach we tried to kind of engage with all those different layers and, and and use those as kind of either sites or places to gather material or things that then could help us create material or scores and motifs and shapes in themselves some of these sherds became um performance scores in themselves so at one point in the piece um a singer uses she picks up sherds and uses them live and kind of sings the outline and the textures as a score uses that as a score but yeah we had somebody working live uh, kelly jane jones working live with rocks from the dig as well so they were kind of on a piece of slate which she amplifies with contact mics and then she can use the rocks against the slate so they became instruments in their own right as well but they also also recreated a landscape because they were also filmed and then projected to kind of create a new set of geological kind of movements of their own taking place. So we were, again, trying to kind of hold it all at the same time, all these threads. quite keen to sort of use lots and lots of different strategies to try and connect with the site but also the processes on the site so in terms of kind of gathering material that included everything from interviews um through to kind of I guess I'll call it a standard field recording but yeah field recordings on the site to then working with a slightly more involved way um, in terms of contact microphones and like microphones under the ground. The thing with microphones that deal with vibration rather than sound waves, you never quite know what you're going to get. You think, oh great, I'll attach this to, I don't know, a trowel. It's going to be great. And it's just, an, or maybe there's just not a lot of vibration. And So it's kind of, what's quite nice about that is you're sort of, um, you're kind of taking part in some kind of searching process as well then. So there's lots of kind of inserting microphones here, there and everywhere, looking at how we could capture like a trench in sound, for instance. So there's some really lovely sounds of like the way that the um, they would work in a line, I can't remember how you describe it, but kind of mm-hmm. taking back a layer at a time. So kind of trying to track that um, past the microphone. Yeah, so you of... could hear people, you could hear this line of archaeology students getting further and further tracking away, back. but it, it sounded as though you were underneath the archaeological excavation I guess it's also for us it felt like we didn't want to present a straightforward representation of an archaeological Mm. dig we were kind of like okay there's something more interesting going on with this place and how how might kind of working in these ways and collecting 
yeah these vibrations and sounds potentially present sort of a different kind of perspective or mm. sense of a place that yeah was ri- richer and perhaps yeah like you were saying more o- you know there's this sense of it being more open as well in terms of you know it creates it opens up this other space rather than creating a neat representation of mm. of a particular situation or in independently both of our work often responds to particular places or kind of geographic locations and I suppose archaeology if we think about it as an approach to so rather than kind of extracting and using material culture of, of the past it's kind of like actually like engaging with it in quite an active way in the present and and, and recognising that both archaeology and art is a sort of creative process and there's a lot of speculation and in, in mm-hmm. inference that we make because often within both of those practices we don't have a complete picture we're always kind of piecing things together and bringing different objects or sounds or ideas together within the same conceptual frame that might kind of create something more than these individual parts and I suppose you know archaeology and art kind of I think both attempt to do that and and, and they're perhaps quite good companion uh, disciplines in a way Um, and I think you know what's quite useful is especially when you know artists and archaeologists can work together that each each one also shakes up the boundaries of the discipline of the other (laughs) so um and that can be quite a useful um, that can be quite a useful process as well.
What Nastasha says here about archaeology and art being companion disciplines really resonates with our practices too. In our project Beneath Clouded Hills, we also worked with archaeology and paleontology to navigate the complexities of place and landscape, hoping it would allow us to access and make connection with our shared past. But we also felt we needed to bring in a different kind of knowledge, one held by our bodies, a sensory knowledge which connected us to each other, the land, and something more mysterious and harder to explain. What, we wondered, would such an embodied experience bring? For inspiration, we looked to a group of musicians who had worked with voice as a medium to peel back the layers of Deep England. don't think any of us were really prepared for how powerful it was going to be. We all went through a very um, big process with, with how incredible it was to kind of sing that in that way, purge that out and bring in. Because it's, you're kind of, yeah, you're kind of purging out all of the stuff that we're all holding on to, especially in that particular time when this was coming out. It became, it, be, it couldn't have been more of an intense context for that to come out and everything that was happening at that time was just incredible. This is Shano Gorman, who leads a drone choir called Nix. We're talking to her and Elizabeth Bernholtz, aka Gazelle Twin, about their 2021 album, which is also called Deep England. The album was a collaborative reworking of Gazelle Twin's previous solo album called Pastoral. So of course we had to ask them, why the title Deep England? The basics of the idea um, of the name came from a song, which was actually, I think it was a B-side of, of a, one of the singles that I released from Pastoral. Um, and my my kind of thinking of, I can't, I can't really talk about that without talking about the entire sort of theme of the album really, which was about moving away from a sort of a place of familiarity, maybe a, a place of liberal kind of um, politics and culture to a place that felt absolutely the opposite of that and um, was also rural, you know, rural life from city life. And um, I was, well, became a parent and then um, sort of shortly before or shortly after the Brexit referendum, I, I was kind of had all of these things coming together and kind of affecting my my sort of own sense of identity and my you know you think a lot about that when you have a child it kind of really you're because your role shifts so suddenly into the role of parent and um, there's all that as well and I felt like everything was colliding and, and I just needed to try to make sense of that somehow so my making sense of that was kind of I saw it as a sort of pastoral um, framework taking the Mickey quite a lot out of out of cliches and tropes that you know that I've kind of grown up with accepting and you know these these range from colonialism 
um, Christianity, um, the sort of roots, folk roots, um, and also more contemporary sort of cliches and, and sort of, um, I don't know what, whether it's tropes or it's, it's just kind of cultural kind of class-based sort of cultural observations and things like that. So I was thinking more about, you know, kind of like football hooliganism and toxic masculinity and how that theme runs through everything that I've just described. And it was, it was so pastoral was me trying to make sense and kind of try to amalgamate somehow this, this, this kind of questioning of what, what it was to be English for me as a, you know, very consciously as a white um, middle-class woman, but also as parent um, and someone who's kind of, you know, led a relatively um, privileged life. So it was, it was really trying to sort of, yeah, come to terms with that, make sense of it, but also crucially take Mickey out of it as well. Um, I really wanted to sort of use, and I feel like that was a very English, for me, it's a very English thing to sort of be quite sarcastic and quite sardonic. And I really wanted that element to it too. So with Deep England, so as I said, it's kind of like a quite a floaty, more ambient to be side. But, but lyrically, I'm talking about retail parks and um, silver clouds, and I'm kind of connecting the kind of present reality, literally, the, you know, the landscape around me, which is, you know, dotted with retail parks amid sort of farmland and pastoral. And it's very much on a, on a history of um, base, you know, like literally layered up on the history of land ownership and, you know, manorial uh, law and things like that. So that particular song, for me just felt like I was kind of get, trying to get to the essence of what it felt like to be in contemporary England, but with this really present, really inescapable sense and, and, and relics of the past everywhere that haven't changed, you know, in centuries and, and actually still feel like they were then, you know, like there's still this hold over the land. Uh, literally where I where I live the village and the land is, is pretty much owned by the um the Duke of Rutland and you know they're like the biggest landowners in the UK or, or maybe England sorry in um I think they might even still be I'm not sure if that's wholly true but I was just really interested in kind of joining up the past basically with the present and and just to trying to to kind of paint you know a literal landscape of what that feels like and what, and what it looks like and sounds like I think that was what I was thinking about with Deep England. It was kind of like the core, the core of that place where, um, yeah, where, where sort of our really deep and ancient history meets the present and, and all the kind of grubbiness and weirdness and, and violence that's in that as well. One track on the album which really stood out to us was, of course, Jerusalem. In our first episode, we wondered whether Jerusalem could be wrestled away from its current patriotic connotations to get closer to what Blake intended. So we were curious as to how they saw and navigated the inherent contradictions present in the song. That to me is the next level of like, you know, deep, deep Church of England. Um, uh, but also, it also conjures up some really beautiful imagery in there as well. It's, it's exactly this kind of, um, this, uh, this kind of slightly uh, opposing forces thing because there, there is so much beauty in that song and in the, in the kind of 
images it conjures up in this in this magical kind of unified world and and ideology of this perfection of this of this kind of new place but at the same time it's just so fucked up like and i and i that's why i kind of brought it in and i just i just took that main verse and i was just like we're just going to sing this in unison and we're going to put in some strange harmonies and it just it's the thing that we open with in the show because it feels like oh this is also like the opening of the proms or like the you know Ruth Corey does the solo on that piece and she just absolutely and the fact she sings it and then she loops it and then reverses it and it turns into this kind of almost like that that concept of like you know playing the record backwards and it starts making all the satanic stuff it's exactly the same concept as that so it's yeah it's just further distorting what doesn't really even need to be distorted because it's so messed up in the first place but it's quite fun to play with and fun to play with that kind of you know, she sings it in such a churchly, we really go to town on the reverb of that. We just make, we pretend we're in a giant cathedral singing it um, and trying to shed some light on something that's actually just got such a dark, dark side of it. So that was my perspective on it. I don't know if, if you've got anything else to add, Elizabeth, but. <laughs> well, I mean, it just, it was a perfect, it was the perfect thing to do because it's it's this hymn, isn't it? It's the, like you say, it was it was Blake's, poem put to the Christian sort of hymn book and I, I feel like Blake there's quite a bit of Blake in my in pastoral as well as a, a huge influence to me as a, as a sort of um, teenager in terms of art actually but then again in music and um, and I just feel like everything that um, you know I used to just read his poems all the time and um, just like you described Sean it's this kind of piety to it but there's and there's this kind of reverence of the heavens and the earth but there's also this there is this really weirdness this darkness this kind of eccentricity which I feel is really English um, and at the core of kind of so much of that that kind of voicing as well and that that landscape so it for me it was great to just have that and and actually do it you know actually do it sort of not properly I would say but maybe just just yeah have, have that kind of contrast and that making that point of this tradition that we are we are referencing here, but but really screwing it up and just kind of doing our own thing with it. I also love the fact that Ruth, you know, she she would say when we perform it, um, you know, because she's from Northern Ireland and she's and she, her family were like horrified that she was going to perform Jerusalem, like my God. But then it's like, well, no, because it's not. I'm not performing it for real. It, it, I'm performing it kind of with these kind of demonic almost like demonic kind of eyes and you know it's this kind of we're taking it we're taking it back to us ourselves and we're we're, we're bewitching it somehow so yeah I, and I love that that that's like a full circle back to Blake who wasn't necessarily this this you know um this kind of perfect pious man it was it was this lovely kind of connection back to the kind of psychedelic nature of it
part of the myth we're living in currently is that we are individual and separate from one another and that's how we can commit such horrific crimes to other people to the land around us to the you know to everything going on so when we're stuck in this kind of mindset of like this is me this is my my unit and you're not looking out um this is how this kind of shit can go on and i think um singing together being together in a group of people in any form like uh, of all different kind of voices people using their voices together is just the most incredibly healing experience i think like elizabeth's touching on there's like so many elements in this music of the purge like really kind of releasing this rage that's built up in all of us throughout you know last couple of centuries has to come out and the power of this voice means that the purge can be stronger, but it also means that we can hold each other in that kind of sound um, and that the healing can kind of come in all together. We're all holding each other in that. So I think the the thing that's always drawn me towards like choral singing is that collective singing, vocalizing is that you're first of all you're really in your body so you're you're kind of outside of this bit of your mind and you're getting really grounded into yourself and into the earth and where you are but you're also making a sound they're making a collective sound that makes you kind of drop away from your sense of separateness and kind of combines you into this big healing womb of sound um which just has so many different effects on the individual, on the collective, on on all of it, we tap into very different forms of collective singing in this, and we we do go from like the kind of football hooligan all screaming together like "Who are ya? What what what? Better in my day?" like screaming that kind of stuff, which is cathartic and taking the piss in its own right. But for so many people in England, all over the world, that's their only form of collective singing is is that, and so in some ways that. You know, there's a really dark side to that, but there's also really, but that's for some people, their only sense of feeling in a community or like a collective spirit is like at the football screaming out, having a great time. So people, people all over understand what that is, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's being able to have the capacity of all these different forms of singing in this that, that come through, come through in deep England. I think also when we're starting to form, um, when we're integrating the technology of this as well, we're using, we're all using a lot of different effects, pedals, processes, all these sorts of things to, to kind of delve into the whole spectrum of sound. So we're able to sound like loads of different characters, like loads of different genders, where we're able to kind of cross in and out of that as well, which is really powerful. So it's like, there is this unifying collective sound of just being in a room, making sound with people, purging, singing, healing kind of tones. But then there's also this kind of exploration into all the different characters that in itself is incredibly like, transformative the voice and sound from the body is like it like the one way of connecting us back into ourselves and and into this like dissolution of separateness from ourselves each other and the land underneath our feet and i think you know people have been singing together on the land for eons you know and as soon as you start, as soon as you get a group of people in a room improvising, using their voices, using their bodies to create sound, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily connected to songs or anything. As soon as you get to that point, 
there's just this dropping down into the earth, into the land around you. It, everything constantly gets very, very like, um, everything just feels so ancient and so connected. And I think as soon as you're starting to shift out of this making bit here and anything you can do to get down, get down into the land, the voice just naturally takes you there. Um, and so many of these kind of old songs from all over uh, Eastern Europe, from Wales, and every single one of them is, you know, that all of the old folk songs are just, wow, look at the sun, look at how it shines down on us, let's celebrate. That's just the lyrics, that's just, that's just what it is. Or like a song about the river or a song about the land like that that's the foundation of all of the music is like togetherness through the land so you know the more we can just get people singing together in that kind of way i think that it, it just can do so much it's such an easy repair mode it's just free you just sing to get a group of people together and make some sound together it's just like a free form of of, of healing yourselves and healing each other it's amazing In this episode, we have hopefully managed to scratch the surface of England. David Gilbert helped us understand what Deep England might look like and the emotional power it holds over the national psyche. Nastasha and Rebecca explained their artistic approach to place and landscape during a residency at an archaeological dig at Pendle Hill. Their resulting work, Sherds, brings together archaeology and art practice to more meaningfully understand the complex histories lying under our feet. And Nixon Gazeltwin expanded on the power held in the collective voice and the importance of coming together to both contest, purge and heal. In the next episode, we will talk about how we as artists have approached Deep England by burrowing further underground, unearthing ancient relics and attempting to decipher signs left behind by our prehistoric kindred. Bye.
This episode is part of Legion Project's audio and podcast series Plowing Old Patterns, Raising New Ground and co-commissioned by Block Projects. The episode was made by Verity Burt and Una Hamilton-Heller. The music is courtesy of Topic Records, Nastasia Zeminski and Rebecca Lee and NYX and Gazelle Twin. Editor and sound designer is Una Hamilton-Heller. To listen to a Deep England-inspired playlist, search Beneath Clouded Hills on Spotify. The series theme tune is composed by Stephen Crow, and graphic design is by Blue Firth. This episode has been supported by Arts Council England and the European Research Council. For further credits, please see the show notes.